Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be in your house today. I thank you for our visitors today, the special music, all, all of the wonderful things so far we've been blessed with in this service. I pray now that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word and give us ears to hear and hearts to respond, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time belaboring things we've already talked about here in 1 Corinthians 10, but this is our setting, and the main gist of it, in fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians verse 10, uh, sorry, chapter 10, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. And what the Apostle's telling us here is he's talking about an experience that all of the Israelites had in common as they left Egypt. But through this chapter, he traces down to the fact that all of them had that same experience of the vast number that came out of Egypt, which we can figure conservatively around two million, two of the original went into the promised land. That should be a little bit alarming, and it's alarming to the Apostle Paul because he knows it could happen again, not that it must happen again. And so what he does is he wants to admonish us, give us some warnings and encouragements in the right direction so we don't make the same mistakes. We pick that up in verse 6. He says, now these things, that is the experiences of the children of Israel, became what? Our examples to the intent, or for this reason, that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters. And again, I don't want to go through this piece by piece, this part here, but we've, we've talked about this, and you can study it in your, in your Sabbath afternoon, but Paul brings up five specific experiences from the history of the Israelites as lessons for us. In verse 6, he says it happened to them as examples, and then he kind of binds that off in verse 11 by saying again, now all these things happened to them as what? Examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so he's wanting us to learn some lessons from the history of the children of Israel. Now, I told you when we started this that I'm going in the order that they appear in the Bible. So even though he gave in his list, uh, in verse 7, he talks about becoming idolaters and refers back to the time of the golden calf. That happened first in Scripture. So we already looked at that one. And we saw the children of Israel were, were, were longing for the worship of Egypt. Today we're going to see that they were also longing for the food of Egypt. Uh, thus the title, that quaint little restaurant in Cairo. Question number six, or not question number six, but verse number six says that these things became examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. If you read through the list of his examples, this is probably the one that is not, is the late, the least clear. And so, in other words, you know, lusting after evil, that could refer to anything. So just so you know that I'm not just taking a stab in the dark at this, I want you to understand that Almost universally, biblical scholars understand this to be a reference to the story in Numbers 11, which is where we're going to go here in just a moment. Um, Just as a, for instance, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which is published by the Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, observes that Paul is recounting 
what they call a five-fold failure, the five stories, experienced by Israel during this time. He began with the Israelites craving for the pleasure of Egypt, summarized in their plaintive cry, give us meat to eat. And, of course, if you look into Albert Barnes or Adam Clark or John Gill or Matthew Henry or Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary, a number of them you could look at, non-Adventist commentaries, they all will take you back to Numbers chapter 11. And if you have a Bible with center column references and you look there after lusting after evil things, it will take you back to Numbers 11. So let's go to Numbers 11 and look at this story that the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention to upon whom the ends of the world have come. The book of Numbers is the fourth book in the scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We are following along with the children of Israel as they have come out of the land of Egypt and they're traveling through the wilderness to the promised land. Now, for sake of time, I am not going to go through every part of this chapter But we're going to get the main gist of Paul's point, this lusting after evil things. Just so you understand also when when he says in in, um, 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians 10 there, lusting after evil things, that word evil doesn't mean inherently evil, but things which are harmful. And so it's not necessarily an immoral thing he's pointing out as much as it is that they were desiring harmful things. We'll see that in the story. Numbers 11 And let's look at verses 1 through 6 here. The Bible says, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them, and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Tabera, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now, notice verse 4. Now, the mixed multitude, who is it here? The mixed multitude, right? We talked about these last time, the Egyptians, right? These are the Egyptians. They're Egyptians who came in among the Israelites, but they have a lot of Egypt in their heart. The mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? What had God given them to eat? Okay, manna. And our understanding of manna is, sometimes we, we, we you know, I remember growing up and thinking manna was like a little cracker or something. Some little, and it's like a little wafer made with honey, the Bible says. But if you read the scripture, it does say that they would grind the manna or boil the manna, they often ground it down into a flour and made things out of it. More like a grain-ish. I mean, I don't know. I've never had a piece of manna. But um, the Lord had fed them manna in the wilderness, and they were not content with that. They said, who will give us meat to eat? Number five, verse five, we remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. And so some of these items are things that are very uh, water-heavy, right? They're in the wilderness. They're looking, oh, the melons would be so good, and the cucumbers, and then some of them may be a little more flavor than what they're getting in the manna. Verse 6, But now our whole being is dried up, and there is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. 
Now, this isn't the only time that the children of Israel complained about the manna. Incidentally, when they complained about the manna, what were they complaining about? God's provision, right? I mean, we could probably go on quite a tangent about how often we say, yes, I want the Lord to guide me and I want to follow his will, but we find ourselves complaining when he makes his his will known. They were not happy with the manna. They were tired of it. Now, I want to jump ahead to verse 18, and the Bible describes the manna and then uh, actually goes into uh, uh, Moses getting a little frustrated with this. We're jumping past that. There are a lot of lessons we could draw here from chapter 11, but Paul is zeroing in on this lusting after the food of Egypt. So go to verse 18 with me. And the Lord directs Moses, Then you shall say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall, have, you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall, have, uh, you shall eat. You shall, you shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have what? Despised the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever come up out of Egypt? So they would rather be slaves and indulge their appetites than follow the will of the Lord. Are you with me so far? Okay, and so Paul, here, they're just recounting the story, and incidentally, Moses tells them, the Lord tells Moses to tell them, you're not going to get your meat for one day or two. You're going to have it for a whole month until it comes out your nostrils. When does food that you eat come out your nostrils? It's when you get sick on it, okay? So just that's what the Bible's trying to communicate here. I don't want to get any more graphic than that, but you get the picture. Sorry. So he goes on to say, um, <laughs> of course, Moses is, is wondering what to do with this. Verse 21, Moses said, The people whom I am among are 600,000 men on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat for a whole month. Right? So where am I going to get that from is his idea. Now jump ahead to verse 34. We'll get the main gist of this. Verse, verse not verse 34. I put 34. 31. So the Bible says, as the Lord comes to, to, to bring this to pass, it says, Now a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and left them fluttering near the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and about a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. He who gathered, it really isn't that bad. It's going to get better here, okay? The people stayed up all that day, all night, and the next day, gathered the quail. He who gathered the least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatava because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. So the Apostle Paul, now the children of Israel had a lot of experiences. 
But the Apostle Paul sees fit for those of us living at the end of time to say, you know what, this is a story that we especially need to be aware of in the last days. Specifically in this story, this craving the food of Egypt, the lusting after the food of Egypt. What's interesting, there's a couple things that, that, that are interesting. First of all, at this point in his people's history, had God permitted them to eat animal flesh? We're at the ex- time of the Exodus, folks. He did that way back at the ark, right? So now we know that back in the beginning, God gave Adam and Eve a vegetarian diet because nothing died in Eden. But after the flood, God permitted man to eat the flesh of animals. Now here's the thing that really I think we need to be thinking about. God had permitted at least the the clean, what he called the clean animals. God had permitted man to eat the flesh of animals only when he took his people out in the wilderness of Sinai, he gave them a vegetarian diet. Even though he had permitted the other. Now, God does do, doesn't do anything without a purpose, right? So that we're going we're, we're to be processing that purpose. That is part of our uh, message here today. But God had given them a diet that he tailored to them as he brought them out. He's delivering them from Egypt. But the children of Israel complained about his provision because it was different from what they were accustomed to. And you'll find this pattern with God's people all the way till today that we like what we're accustomed to. In fact, there's an old saying that people don't eat what they like, they like what they eat. This is what I mean by that. There are people, I can't fathom this, but I know, I know it to be true. There are people that would much prefer boxed macaroni and cheese to homemade. Because they grew up with boxed macaroni and cheese. Right? (laughs) It's unbelievable, isn't it? Personally, I like SpaghettiOs. Because I grew up... Yeah, people are hearing them out there. Oh, what? SpaghettiOs? Who likes SpaghettiOs? Me. Why? I grew up. My grandma used to feed me SpaghettiOs. We tend to like what we do. We get into our ruts and our habits. And the Israelites had been long in Egypt and they came out and God was giving them a different direction, but it was not the direction they were accustomed to. And of course they complained. And what's interesting is that the Lord decided to give them what they were asking for. With this catch. With its consequences. With its consequences. He conceded and he gave them what they were asking for with its consequences, and this was put on record, according to the Apostle Paul, for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. Now, I want you to note this statement from Patriarchs and Prophets. It says, God gave the people that which was not for their highest good. Why? Because they persisted in desiring it. You know, God is not unreasonable, is he? If we clamor for something and, 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 and cry for something, sometimes the Lord just gives it to us even though it's not best. So he gave it to them. They would not be satisfied with those things that would prove a benefit to them. Their rebellious desires were gratified, but they were left to suffer the result. 
Councils on Health puts it this way, page 111, they preferred to endure slavery, right? Oh, that we're back in Egypt. <laughs> Even death, rather than be deprived of flesh, God granted their desire, giving them flesh and leaving them to eat till their gluttony produced a plague from which many of them died. So we have that, that uh, experience of the Israelites. And again, you know, God, we know God had given uh, man a vegetarian diet at the beginning, but he had made uh, allowances after the flood. But evidently, as he brought the Israelites, and we're going to get into this a little bit more in detail, but he gave the Israelites a vegetarian diet when they came out of Egypt, and he had a purpose in doing that. And Paul says this is written for our admonition. Now, this should not come as a surprise to Seventh-day Adventists, because if Seventh-day Adventists are big on anything, it's health. We've have a, we have a huge health message, health system. Uh, we've, 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 we've done a lot in the area of health, and we are world-renowned for our health principles. Ellen White received her famous health reform vision on June 6, 1863, right here in Michigan, Otsego, Michigan. And in fact, in her own recounting of the experience, she said, most of what I saw was contrary to what I did. <laughs> You know, and, and I don't know that that impacts as much us as much today without really being there and understanding the practices, the health practices of those days. But let me just give you a few ideas of what things were like in the 19th century. Uh, Herbert Douglas in his book, Messenger of the Lord, which is, in fact, let me interject a reading assignment for you. I know you love these. There's a book called Messenger of the Lord. It is the textbook, or was the textbook at Pacific Union College, well, a number of our, our schools now, uh, that Herbert Douglas put together on Ellen White and her ministry. There are six chapters in that book on our health message and how it developed that are fascinating. Every Seventh-day Adventist ought to read it, and you'll get a clear understanding, a balanced understanding, of what that message is about. And that book, by the way, is free in the Ellen White app under the reference materials. Herbert Douglas's book, Messenger of the Lord. But in that book, he makes this point, in, in fact, in that section, the standardized pattern for the treatment of disease relied mostly upon bleeding, purging, and polypharmacy. That's just multi-drugging. <laughs> that, that was the cure-all. And by the way, if you wanted to be a medical doctor back in those days, it took you three months. Okay, that, that ought to tell you something right there. Now, going on. Massive bloodletting was considered the universal solution for almost every problem. <laughs> that doesn't sound good to me. Angeline Andrews, who is the wife of Elder J.N. Andrews, recorded in her diary the story of a neighbor child who had a sore throat. Here's how the doctor dealt with it. The treating physician lanced it and gave him a dose of morphine, all of which contributed to his sudden death. I praise God for medical understanding today. Amen. Okay. Now, she also, Angelina Andrews, in her diary, wrote of local physicians on several occasions administering an assortment, in her words, an assortment of poisons such as ipecac, nitre, and quinine. Nitre is potassium nitrate. It's found in fertilizer and gunpowder. Let's just give that system a bang and we'll see where we end up. Those were the health practices. Jan Loughborough was prescribed smoking tobacco to relieve his lung hemorrhaging when he was 16 years old. 
So it's interesting that Oliver Wendell Holmes made this statement, if the whole Materia Medica, these were the drugs that they were prescribing in those days, if the whole Materia Medica as now used could be sunk to the bottom of the sea, it would be better for all, man, all the better for mankind and all the worse for the fishes. And at this time period, Ellen White has a vision, and just so that we understand, her vision didn't create a bunch of health ideas, it pointed to biblical principles, the Bible's full of health principles, and made application to the current setting. And it was, it, 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 the health reformers of those days and since to even our day look back and say it's astounding the, the it, um, uh, what do I want to say, how congruent, how harmonious, how sensible those principles were. Now I say sensible without saying obviously some of them contradicted modern practices and so they didn't all seem sensible to people. They seem sensible to us now. So we have that history of, of uh, you know, our health message. And, and, of course, in the past seven decades, multiple studies have been done, conducted on Adventist health and longevity. I don't want to get into the statistics, and I want to tell you why. Because I think we as Seventh-day Adventists have missed the boat on the health message this way. We thought it was about longevity. We thought it was about being healthy physically, living a few more years. We live on average, the first study, the mortality study done back in the 60s said that Adventist men lived an average of 6.2 years longer than non-Adventist men in the, in the concurrent American Cancer Society study. In the first Adventist health study that came later on between 74 and 88, well, hey, we bumped it up, 7.3 years longer. Seventh-day Adventist men lived, and, and the women a little bit less than their counterparts in California at the time that study was done. You've probably heard of the Blue Zone study by Dan Buettner with National Geographic in 2005 and, and looking for longevity areas. Well, that's all great. In other words, you follow biblical health principles and dietary principles, and you could live a longer, healthier life. When I say longer, that doesn't mean you're going to be 10 more years on bed rest as a rule. But now let's be real plain about something and honest about something. And this is what we do. I've talked about health. I believe in Adventist health principles. I did not always practice them. <laughs> okay? I was not always a vegetarian. I, 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 and I used to drink and smoke and other things. So I didn't always practice the Adventist health principles. I praise God for them. But when I find myself advocating them, I always find a devil's advocate or two who says, but pastor, I know this Adventist guy, he was so, I mean, got up, exercised, got the right amount of sleep, ate right, he's been dead since he's 45. Well, it's true. The reality is a healthy diet does not guarantee you a long life in this world for many reasons. Could be accidents, could be hereditary problems, right? But I'll make the point again. Our health message was never primarily, I shouldn't say our health message, the health principles of God all through Scripture, the ones he gave to the Israelites, the ones he gave to Adam and Eve, were never principally and primarily that we would live longer. So that I'd go from 70 to 75 and a half. You following what I'm saying so far? There are health benefits, and we've, we, I've mentioned some of that, and I want to share a couple here before I get into what I believe the Apostle's really touching on, because I think these are important. God didn't give his people flesh in the wilderness. I want you to notice this, and, and I... <laughs> let me back up. I think this particular message here, you know, you don't mess with somebody's plate. <laughs> 
right? The way to man's heart is through his stomach. I think it was this message here that made me divert from the admonition series and say, you know, we might just go through the everlasting gospel series first. Because this series is, is intensely practical. And God has given practical advice to his people through, like I said, since way back Adam and Eve. And that advice and counsel is to help to be a blessing to his people. Um, God didn't give the Israelites the flesh foods for a reason. He didn't have Adam and Eve eating them for a reason. He does permit them. It's not a sin, I need to clarify, it's not a sin to be a meat eater, according to Scripture, unless you're eating what the Bible calls unclean meats. But it's not the best way. Notice this here. Ministry of Healing, page 313, says flesh was never the best food. But its use is now, now we're talking back in the early 1900s, the use is now doubly objectionable. Notice why, since what? Disease in animals is so rapidly increasing. You think it's getting better in our world? And we could talk about high factory farms and and high feeding and, and, and things like that. Those who use flesh foods little know what they are eating. Often if they could see the animals when living and know the quality of the meat they eat, they would turn from it with loathing. People are continually eating flesh that is filled with tuberculosis and cancerous germs. The idea of cancerous germs used to be laughable. People say, you Adventists are crazy. Now we know scientifically it's true. Tuberculosis, cancer, and other fatal diseases are thus communicated in the foods that we eat. Councils on Health, uh, uh, page 115, says, those who subsist largely upon meat cannot avoid sometimes eating flesh, which is more or less diseased. I mean, it's, it's hard not to get something sometimes, especially the more disease the animal world gets. But few can be made to believe that it is the meat that they have eaten which has poisoned their blood and caused their suffering. Many die of diseases wholly due to meat eating when the real cause is scarcely suspected by themselves or others. Now, of course, I'm bringing this out because this is where the Apostle Paul is drawing our attention to. But I don't want to skip over gluttony. I don't want to skip over overdoing it on sugar or anything else. The point is, if we are not watching what we're putting in, it's going to affect us. And it's going to affect us in more ways than one. It may be doing its work surely upon the system, yet for the time being, the victim may realize nothing of it. So the Lord had a better plan for his people. But long life, as I said, has never been God's primary purpose in providing health principles for his people, nor was it the point the apostles drawing out. The apostle pointing us back to numbers is not, his point wasn't that you're going to live longer. That's not his point with the Israelites. Incidentally, um, all the apostles of Christ were health reformers. I believe they were meat eaters at the time. You didn't have the disease in the animal kingdom, but they followed the biblical health principles. Only one of them made it past their 60s. Right? So why else would God have given the manna to his people? What else was the purpose? Notice this statement from This Day with God, page 77. Notice carefully. If the Israelites had been given the diet to which they had been accustomed while in Egypt, they would have exhibited the unmanageable spirit that the world is exhibiting today. The human family as it is today is an illustration of what the children of Israel would have been if God had allowed them to eat the food and follow the habits and customs of the Egyptians. So what this is saying is that their diet had more an effect on more than just 
their physical health. Why did God give the manna? Go to Deuteronomy 8 with me, and let's look at this. I mean, there are other places we could look, but Deuteronomy 8 is a good one. And Deuteronomy 8 brings a lot of things in that God did for his people, but I want you to notice Deuteronomy 8, verse 16. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8 and verse 16. And we're in a list of the things as Moses is recounting to God's people, all the different blessings that God's given. In verse 16 he says, Who fed you in the wilderness with what? Manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. You know what manna means, don't you? The word manna means what is it? How many of you used to be meat eaters and you became a vegetarian and said, what is it? Right? I mean, that's so appropriate, isn't it? You're like, oh, what is this stuff? The Lord says who fed you, that your fathers didn't know. It's like nobody in my family ever knew this stuff. What is it? But God said that I may do you good in the end. Notice this statement here from Council on Diet and Foods, page 375. It says, the Lord did not provide his people with flesh meat in the desert, which we commented on, because he knew that the use of this diet would create disease and, what's the next one? Insubordination. That is a rebellion of heart. There are two things there. Do you see that? One is dealing with physical health, but the other is dealing with spiritual health. Okay? In order to modify the disposition, we would say the attitude of heart, and bring the higher powers of the mind into active exercise, he removed from them the flesh of dead animals. Now, just to clarify that, we're going to see this come up again When the Bible talks about, or when Ellen White rather uses this term, the higher powers, it's talking about the reasoning centers of the mind. And something happened when Adam and Eve sinned to our whole race that we happen to be the recipients of. Before sin, God created mankind so that reason would always override passion. So even though I had a craving for something... If I knew it was better that I not go there, my mind would say, no, that's not a good choice now. For example, this is an example I use that most people are acquainted with. Let's go to Thanksgiving, shall we? Okay, Thanksgiving, you've just finished that Thanksgiving meal, right? You've loosened the belt buckle, you've unbuttoned the top button on your pants, trousers, whatever, right? You know, you just probably ate too much anyway. And in your mind, you're thinking, Okay, that's it. I'm done. I have, I can't eat another bite. And then somebody comes in the room and says, who wants pie? Right? And your, and your brain says, no. And your body says, pie. Right? The higher power should say, you know, we're going to have some temperance here. We're going to say, no, 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 we're going to have it later. Okay? But because of the urge of the body, what, what happens in fallen humanity is, Where the higher power used to always be the controlling influence, too often the passion is the controlling influence. And when we now, as sinful beings, continue to feed our passions and fulfill our cravings, it strengthens the lower passions instead of the higher powers. But, 
when by the grace of Christ we exercise faith and choose the right thing and say, no, I'm going to have the pie later, it actually strengthens the reasoning powers, the intellect, the higher powers. This is what this is addressing. God knew that if he was going to give them this diet, that diet of, of flesh would could contribute to the weakness of the flesh. It would strengthen their passions and make it harder for them to obey. And so the Lord did not give them that. He removed from them the flesh of dead animals. There was more to his health plan, his diet plan. I, I need to clarify that. There's more to diet. We're, not, we're, we're talking about diet today because Paul takes us to the lusting after the food. But we can talk about fresh air and sunshine. There are other aspects to health, and I understand that. But there was more to the diet than just physical health. Notice this statement. Uh, in the context, Councils of Diet and Foods, page 38, the health reform is the Lord's means of lessening the suffering in our world and of purifying his people. So we see the two things again. We see physical health, but also spiritual health. Look at this one. The light God has given on health reform is for our salvation and the salvation of the world. Okay, because that's why we say we have a health message. We want to share with others. The print, you know, all this is saying is, it's not saying we're saved by what we eat. It's saying that the principles, when we follow God's principles, it helps to strengthen the higher powers and our ability to respond to the Lord. Okay, don't, don't take this as, oh, I'm going to be saved because I, I, I stopped eating ham sandwiches. Okay? All right. Now, I want to go to where our scripture reading was, which I love that, Doug, in... Uh, that was a good one. The living, the living translation. I'd like to hear the clear word, but the living translation, that was powerful. In Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is warning us, those who eagerly wait for the Savior, about those who have become the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose gods are their bellies. And as it said in the scripture reading that Doug read, and in some translations like New American Standard Bible, it says whose God is their appetite. And I believe that the issue that the apostle is dressing far more than that of physical health is the power of appetite. And I think that he understands, and we need to understand in the last days, how powerful our appetites can be to cause our ruin, as it caused the ruin of many of the children of Israel. Uh, Philippians, sorry, I was talking and not turning. Philippians chapter 3, and we're looking there in verse um, 17. The Apostle Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern, for many walk, of whom I have told you often. Now, I want you to just notice something here. Again, he says in, in verse 17, Note those who so walk. Follow my example and those who so walk or walk in the same way. Are you familiar with what, it, what the Bible writers mean in the New Testament when they're talking about the walk and, and how you walk and walking as Jesus walked? You know what they mean by the walk? When Paul talks about those who walk, he's talking about believers. He's talking about walking that walk of faith, walking that following of Jesus. And so when he says... He talks about how they walk, and, and, and it's a way of con they, how they conduct themselves. He says, note those of us who walk, and then he says in verse 18, many walk, that I've told you about often, and now I'm telling you weeping, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He's not talking about the secular world here. He's talking about those, talking about those who walk. 
There are those who profess to be Christians, but their gods are their appetites. Right? In other words, instead of the, the powers of the mind being able to discipline the body, the body runs the mind. And listen, when the appetite controls, it doesn't just stop at your plate. It's temper tantrums, it tantrums, it's illicit relationships, it's all kinds of... The, 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 when the appetite controls, it's all the passions of the flesh or any passion of the flesh. For you, it may be one thing for me, another, but my, when my appetite's in control, then I have no power to say no. And Paul's addressing that. These people, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. God is their appetites. And again, they, they walk, so they're a Jizrealites. Notice this statement from Councils on Health 133. It says, the health of the body is to be regarded. What does it mean? What do you think it means to be regarded? It means we should understand it this way, but not everybody does. Is to be regarded as essential to growth and grace and the acquirement of an even temper, erroneous eating and drinking result in erroneous thinking and acting. Seventh-day Adventists, we believe we're entire beings. We don't believe that, we're, that we have some separate spirit that's going to go from our body when we die, and we're one unit. And, 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 and the health of the body affects the health of the mind. This is what this is pointing out. Erroneous eating and drinking. It's going to affect your mind and affect your passions. Patriarchs and Prophets 562 says, there are few who realize as they should how much their habits of what? Diet have to do with their health that's pretty obvious. Their character, hmm, maybe not, usefulness in this world and their eternal destiny. Why? It goes on to say the appetite should ever be in subjection to the moral and intellectual powers. Those are those higher powers of the mind. The body should be servant to the mind, not the mind to the body. We should be able to say by the grace of Christ, no to any craving. Because we're in these fallen natures, there's going to be cravings, but we don't have to give in to them. But the Lord says, if you want to be an overcomer, I'm going to give you some help in giving some principles that will help your mind to have power over the body. But if we violate those principles, it's going to weaken our ability. It's going to strengthen the fallen nature and weaken our resolve to follow the Lord. Notice this one here. Temperance in eating and drinking, leading as it does to the indulgence of the lower passions... Prepares the what? Prepares the way for men to disregard all moral obligations. That's why I said it doesn't stop with appetite. It doesn't stop with my plate. When I can't control my passions, my passions can go anywhere. When assailed by temptation, they have little power of resistance. I know people who have no... I've talked to... Uh, there's a one, I, I know a particular guy that was struggling with, with pornography addiction. And he was also a heavy caffeine doser. Now, I know caffeine's a drug of choice today. It's a popular drug. Even the Adventist Church, it's, it's becoming, oh, it's not an issue. I read this article here and there. I had a great article I read in Forbes recently that really spelled it out. But the point is, caffeine affects the, the, the judgment center of the brain. And, 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 and it weakens the higher nature. Anything that affects the judgment center is weakening the higher nature and strengthening the lower nature. And he's thinking, I've got this problem with pornography and I know how to deal with it. And I said, have you ever thought about your intemperate habits? 
Maybe if you address this area, it would give you strength in this area. But that's we, we just don't put the two and two together. We're just like, ah, oh, that has nothing to do with it. No, it has everything to do with it. There are few who realize how much those habits of diet have to do with our faithfulness to the Lord. Folks, where, where, did, where did sin enter the world? On what point of temptation? It was appetite. It was appetite. And here's what's fascinating about it. If you go through the Bible, just a few things that come to my mind right away is when Adam and Eve fell on appetite, they were gone. That was it. They had weakened the nature of humanity. But you come to the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, out of all the Hebrew captives, there were only four who resisted the temptations to appetite. Who were the only four, well, Daniel was out of town, as we understand, who stood when everybody else bowed to the golden image? The ones who had passed the appetite test. When Jesus was in the wilderness, on our behalf, what was the first temptation the devil threw at him? Have you ever thought about that? Turn these stones into bread. It was an appetite temptation. Have you ever... I'm going to avoid going into the three areas of temptation. But have you ever thought about that for a minute. How important was it for Satan to overthrow Christ in the wilderness? Everything stood or fall on that and he failed there. Okay? Now if it's if it is of utmost importance for you to bring down your opponent and you've got how many shots? He took three shots there. You're going to make the first one count, aren't you? What's the very first one he chose? appetite. I want you to notice this statement. It's powerful. Temperance, Christian Temperance 276, it says, through inducing men to yield to his temptations, speaking of the devil here, he can get control of them, and through no class of temptations does he achieve greater success than through those addressed to the appetite. Now, temptations to the appetite can also include temptations to use a drug and things like that. There's other If he can control the appetite, he can control what? The whole man. That's what we see in Eden. He tried it on Daniel. He didn't didn't work on Daniel. But it worked on a lot of others. It worked on the Israelites. But Jesus overcame in our behalf in the wilderness on that temptation and all the others. To appetites. Sin entered our world through appetite. This is why, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to turn to Proverbs 23.2, but Proverbs 23.2 says this, if you're a man given to appetite, put a knife to your throat. (laughs) You don't get much more, uh, yeah, graphic than that. Just kill yourself. If you're given appetite, you may as well do yourself in. Because appetite will weaken you completely. Now, I'm going to tell you, my wife and I, um, I'm wrapping up here. My wife and I had a did a juice fast. We've done, we've done a few of these, but I remember the first time we did it. Has anybody here ever done a juice fast or any other kind of fast for a period of time? I think we went like seven days. It was the most horrific experience that I, oh, there are the first few days. Now, I'll tell you, your body actually adjusts to certain things, but the first few days Oh, you just want to go in bed and cover your head and lay there all day and just forget about life and hope to die. Um, and, it, and, and here's the thing that I found. that it, It's not just the... It's not just food. 
Because we were juice fasting, and you can have all the juice you want, and you get calories in, and we're not talking about grape juice and sugary juices that come in, and they're just, they don't satisfy. I mean, it wasn't a caloric issue, but there is a psychological part of eating. And I remember my wife and I sitting down at the table together with a glass of juice. You know, it just wasn't the same as sitting down with food. And again, it wasn't because of of the of just eating and, and getting the nourishment. Appetite is more than just your belly being filled. I'm just telling you. And there's a there's a there's a comforting feeling you can have when you sit down for a meal. Um, put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Look, this is an area the Lord the Lord points out. It says in the last days, what does the Bible say? It's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. Men are going to be eating and drinking. Well, what's wrong with that? Got to eat and drink. What do you think the Bible's pointing out? It's pointing out this issue. It's the same thing Paul's doing. For those in the last days, appetite, appetite. We've got to understand the power of appetite. And God has given us some counsel to help us not give in to it, but to be victors and follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I want to look at uh, another passage in Matthew here, 19. And I want you to see a principle here. The passage is talking about divorce, and a lot of times people miss the principle. But Matthew 19, notice what it says in, in uh, well, let me get there. Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees are asking a question in verse 3. And I'm going to read, not going to read through the whole passage here, but in uh, Matthew 19, verse 3, it says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and, the two, uh, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Okay, so in essence, he says, No, it's not okay for just any reason. And this is what they come back with. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? Okay, Moses made an allowance for divorce. Notice Jesus' answer. Don't miss the answer. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, what? It was not so. What did that mean? What, is, what was Jesus trying to tell them when he said, yeah, Moses, allow, did Moses allow it? No, God allowed it, right? But Moses said this, and the Lord Jesus is saying in essence, yeah, I allowed that because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning it wasn't so. What was his point? His point was that in the beginning we see God's ideal, and though God has condescended to let us have sometimes what we clamor for, it's not best for us. And that principle that he applies here to marriage is the same principle that we find in the health reforms of Scripture and the, and the health reform we follow in the Adventist church. God is leading us to something better. Ellen White used this statement. She says the health reform is progressive. And I like to emphasize that. Listen to me today, saints. I believe God has entrusted us with principles that will make our lives infinitely better physically and spiritually. But I'm not going to police where you are. 
Okay, I'm not going to come by your house. If I come by to visit, don't hide stuff. Don't be like, you know, <laughs> I remember used to joke. I'd come by the house for visit and say, oh, pastor's here. Clear off the copy table. Put away the, hey, look, I'm not a policeman. But I'll tell you this, I'm not nearly as concerned with where you are in following God's health principles as I am with where you're heading. Are you heading anywhere? The health reform is progressive. It means that we should be moving in a direction. If God has given counsel, I may not be there today, but I should be heading there, shouldn't I? Why? Because it's for... God didn't give that for His good. He gave it for our good. And so Jesus points us to the principle of from the beginning, God had a better plan. Let's be heading for that plan. Last day events, page 82, says health reform is to do among our people a work which it has not yet done. There are those who ought to be awake to the danger of meat-eating who are still eating the flesh of animals, thus endangering the physical, mental, and spiritual health. It says many who are now only half converted on the question of meeting will go from God's people to walk no more with them. That's a sobering statement. That doesn't mean people... I, I, already, I clarify again, it's not a sin if you're a meat-eater. But what it's saying is there needs to, we need to understand that this isn't the best thing and God has a better way for us. And we should be heading that better way. Some will acknowledge the evil of sinful indulgences, yet will excuse themselves by saying that they cannot overcome their passions. You know, I just can't overcome it. This is a terrible admission for any person to make who names Christ. Why? Because Christ, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Why is this weakness? It is because the animal propensities have been strengthened by exercise until they have gained the ascendancy over the higher powers. There are some of you here in this sanctuary today who are struggling with some kind of sin that you have been wanting to get away from and you don't know how and have never put together that it might have to do with habits of intemperance in your diet. The Lord wants us to have victory. The weakness comes from strengthening the animal propensities. Men and women lack principle. They are dying spiritually because they have so long pampered their natural appetites that their power of self-government, right, the mind ruling the body, is gone. The lower passions of their nature have taken the reins, and that which should be the governing power has become the servant of corrupt passion. Sensuality has quenched the desire for holiness and withered spiritual prosperity. God wants us to have something better. Health reform is progressive. And so God wants us to progress. Let's finish in Philippians chapter 3 where our scripture reading was. And notice what the words of the apostles say there in Philippians chapter 3. After he talks about those who are now walking contrary to the cross of Christ, he speaks, I hope to each one of us that we are not walking contrary, but he says in verse 20, our citizenship is where? In heaven. In other words, we need to be living, I forget how it said in the, in the New Living, it was powerful, but basically we need to be living in this world as though this is not our home. We're looking for heaven. We're looking for a better place. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Are we eagerly waiting for Jesus to come again? Eagerly? Who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue most things to himself. 
Listen, the Lord Jesus can subdue all things to himself. Brothers and sisters, he is always on our side. He is always right with us. The only reason he gives us any of these counsels, I love Psalm 84, 11. It says, God says, uh, no good thing will uh, he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God wants us to make those steps toward heaven. He wants us to make choices to follow his will and his counsel. But I want to finish with a statement that is the crowning statement of everything we've looked at. And we need to understand it. The Apostle Paul is pointing us to our dangers. He's pointing us to the history of Israel. But something he would make clear and I would make clear. When we realize our danger, when we say, yes, Lord, I need to make changes, there is no single change we can ever make of ourselves. It's only by the power of God. It's only by first surrendering our heart to Christ, completely submitting to his will, that we're going to be able to go forward in any other direction. So notice this statement. Councils on Diet Foods, page 35, says, Men will what? Never be truly temperate until the grace of Christ is an abiding principle in the heart. All the pledges in the world will not make you or your wife, she's talking to a specific individual here, this is, well, maybe you and your wife, health reformers. No mere restriction of your diet will cure your diseased appetite. Circumstances cannot work reforms. So you can make all the pledges you want. You can make all the restrictions of your diet and get certain things out of the house and say, I'm not going to have it around. It's going to find its way back in. I remember a guy, a friend of my wife and I, he, he was trying to change. He had a real problem with just eating in general. Gotten the bad things out of his house. He said, I was sitting at night. Yeah, sitting at home one night. And this voice just started saying, Jesus. Jesus, go down to the... He said, next thing I knew, I was down at the corner store picking up Jesus. You can get all this stuff out of your house, but it's not going to control anything if Christ and the grace of Christ is not abiding in your heart. And that's the point she's making. No mere restriction of your diet is going to work. Circumstances, you can have some tragedy in your life, and you're like, okay, now I'm going to make a change. But soon that change is going to revert back to how it was unless Christ is on the throne of your heart. Christianity proposes a reformation where? In the heart. What Christ works within will be worked out under the dictation of a converted intellect. The plan of beginning outside and trying to work inward has always failed and always will fail. God's plan with you is to begin at the very seat of the difficulties, the heart, and then from out of the heart will issue the principles of righteousness. The reformation will be outward as well as inward. Brothers and sisters, we are citizens of heaven. We are homeward bound. And I want to keep on that path. I want Christ on the throne of my heart. How about you today? You want Christ on the throne of your heart? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, as we have considered this story in the history of Israel and the Apostle Paul's pointing us to it, this admonition for those of us living in the last days. More importantly, Father, the, the weakness of our fallen natures and the danger of indulging them so that you are not on the throne of our hearts, but self sits enthroned there. Lord, we don't want that. You have blessed your people in times past and you have blessed your people in the last days with principles of life, including principles of diet, that will help us in every area of our physical and spiritual lives. Father, help us to receive your counsel for the blessing you intended it to be. And help us, Lord, to live here 
as citizens of heaven. We ask and pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.